If you've got a Bible, open up to Exodus 7 tonight. We're going to be uh, moving on from where we left off last week. I think we uh, finished it off at about verse number 7. Last time, we'll read verses 8 through um, just a little bit farther down in this chapter. Um, as we kind of, the action starts to pick up uh, tonight. As slow as we're moving through Exodus, um, maybe it's took a little longer than uh, we, we may uh, usually anticipate or expect. But we will make a little progress tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, kind of the instrument that Moses uh, displays God's power with and through. Um, and, and I think this is really going to speak to us tonight. It's, it's been a really awesome thing for me to sit on um, uh, your side of the Lord um, as I've been preparing this. I think God's got something good to say to us. We're actually going to read some chapter 7. We're actually going to flip back to chapter 4 and look at some verses that we uh, we, we read already, but we kind of took it in an Easter message direction and we didn't really cover it uh, pertaining to um, the text. But it'll. I wanted to save it for this chapter because it really connects and, and, and it brings a, lot of, uh, brings a lot out for this message tonight. So um, just bear with me if we're a little bit scattered. I believe we have a a lot to look forward to nonetheless. So um, again, this is not the first encounter uh, between Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, but it's where the action finally starts to pick up in Exodus' story and where some of the events that you're very familiar with, the snakes and the, and the water and the plagues, all that stuff starts to pick up um, uh, from tonight on. But from, uh, but from here, we're going to see Moses face off against Pharaoh. And this is going to be almost an every chapter occurrence. Um, he goes in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I'm not impressed. He says, hey, watch this. He watches it. He gets a little bit scared, but he isn't impressed enough to do anything um, about it or to make any changes until finally he does. And then he even changes his mind then. Y'all know how the story goes. But this is uh, kind of the beginning of, of continual confrontations between Moses and Pharaoh. Um, and, and of course, we've talked about how... This is really kind of symbolic for an even greater confrontation, right? Um, an even greater confrontation that, that, is, that is taking place on the cosmic battlefield where the soul of the planet is on the line. And that might kind of, sound a, kind of sound kind of heavy, right, and kind of deep, but we've kind of talked about these lofty themes that are present in Exodus, um, how this is just, uh, this is more than just a nation trying to break free from another nation, that it's bigger than that and, and not to, to downplay the, uh, or, or not to say that the immorality of slavery isn't a big deal, right? Not to downplay what the people were going through. But this is much bigger than just Israel and Egypt. It's much bigger than the slaves getting free from the nation. Uh, there's an even bigger story, an even bigger um, confrontation going on in the cosmos, right? And in in, in what we cannot see, um, where God is trying to set us all free, from sin and all that kind of all the, the seeds are uh, for the redemption story are really planted in this Exodus story. Um, but the symbolism is not buried too deep, right? We've talked about this extensively. Y'all should know this by now, and I hope this is something that you can take with you for a long time. When you open Exodus, you know this is really the beginning of the redemption story. And and again, it's not hidden. It's not like you can't figure this out with with um, without with too much with too, with too um, you know deep of a read. Um, the world is ruled by by a serpent king, right? So we know who that is. Um, uh, the world has fallen under the dark arts of this pantheon of gods. All of them, of course, are no, none of them are the real one true God. Um, legend has it that there's a that the world once worshipped a single God, um, but he has been forgotten. And there's a small remnant of people that have a connection to him, but they're in slavery to the evil empire. And the only hope for the world is that this one 
tribe rise up, topple the empire, and then reintroduce the God to the whole world. So again, buried underneath the, the surface is the, really the fate of the world resting on Israel breaking free from Egypt that they might begin to spread the news that I am still is, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still with us. And He's not just the God of Israel, but He is the God of the whole world. And we've talked about this a, a, a few times already in our study, and we talked about it specifically last week, especially last week. Um, it, it all falls under the banner so that we may know. That's the goal of all this, right? We saw that repeated in chapter 7, and we saw it um, you know, on blast in verse number 5 of chapter 7, where God says, I'm doing all this that Egypt might know, so ultimately Israel might know, so that the world might know the one true God that the world might know that Yahweh is God and eventually that the world might know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the whole world. All of this is happening. All of this is transpiring. And we talked about it. We kind of zoomed out to where we're at today and we agreed that everything that happens right, everything that takes place happens under the banner, under the idea that this is taking place so that we might know there is is a God, one God, the great I am. Of course, all of Scripture kind of unfolds from there. Israel's history. Um, and, of, and of course, that, that what we see in our own present day, it all unfolds from this place. Now, we, we know that Pharaoh was a stand-in for all the gods of Egypt, right? Pharaoh thought he was the God made flesh. He was the representation of the sun God, the highest of all the Egyptian gods. We also talked about how Pharaoh is clearly um, a stand-in or a picture of the devil, right? Uh, it's, no, it's not a coincidence that he wears a serpent on his crown, right? Um, he is enslaving God's people, so we see the connections there. Pharaoh, uh, representing the God of this world, attempting to Receive this world, and no doubt all the religions and false ways of the world stem from his deception. And you don't need me to tell you that. We all know that, right? The Bible teaches that clearly. So I want you to follow me here, and this gets pretty cool the more we think about it um, as we consider this confrontation. Um, Moses was an adopted son of the previous Pharaoh's daughter, right? When, when the story begins, there's a Pharaoh that has enslaved the people. His daughter goes out to the, Red, to the, to the Nile River, and lo and behold, a baby is in a basket floating from the Hebrew slave camp, right? So the daughter of Pharaoh takes this boy to be her own son, so Moses becomes an adopted grandson to the Egyptian dynasty, to the Pharaoh royal family. The story tells us that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh died while he was in exile, but another of that lineage took his place. And who knows? What if Moses would have been the next in line had he not defended his own people? Had he not risked his life? Had he not ran for his life? What if Moses, had he remained in Egypt, what if he could have been in line for the role of Pharaoh. But instead of taking that role, he began to seek out the faith of his forefathers. He began to seek out the one true God. And it cost him everything. But he gained the main thing. And I think this might be what Hebrews is getting at when the writer of Hebrews reflects on Moses' decision, his choice to follow after God. And you, you, you know these verses. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What does that mean? That's significant, right? He refused to say, hey, my destiny is the throne. And even though I know I'm not an Egyptian, even though I might look like one, I might dress like one and walk like one, right, and talk like one, y'all know the song. Moses knew he wasn't one, but he could fool anybody, right, with the right costume and the right dress code and the right behavior. He was in line to be the ruler. But he refused to wear that mantle, right? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people. Let's go back. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures, right? The fleeting position of ruling the world. Now, we don't know if that's exactly what that's talking about, but it's neat to think about, right? Because it's Moses versus Pharaoh, right? Moses would be facing off against someone from his adopted family, perhaps in a position he could have inherited. So it makes it all the more dramatic that Moses walks into the throne room where he grew up, right? Walks into the throne room and stares a man in the eyes that he no doubt was related to by adoption, that he no doubt could have been in their place. And this confrontation between family members, whether it was his uncle, his brother, his cousin, we're not really sure. If you study the Egyptian royalty, the the family trees, it gets really messy because all the men married their people they shouldn't have married to keep their royal lineage in-house. But nonetheless, Moses had been adopted into that royal family as messy as it was. So it's awesome to think about how this one family unit, God had placed Moses into it, then he had taken him out of it, and now he brought him back to it to face it down. And again, you'll remember verse number, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It kind of establishes the roles uh, of this confrontation. God said to Moses, See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh. And that makes sense because Pharaoh was attempting to be like God to the world. Pharaoh thought he was the God of the world, right? That's the way he, the Pharaohs were brainwashed to believe. They were, the, they were the representation of the gods. He had control of the priests. He had control of the pantheon. They bent at his command, right? They did what he commanded them to do as he bid them to do this or that. So Moses is standing in for God. Whereas Pharaoh is standing in for the enemy. Not as two equals, of course. But we see the, the, what, is set, what is getting set up. And, and none of this is on accident, is it? I think we can at least agree on that. None of that is accidental. So Moses steps into the throne room once more in this chapter. But this time God had prepped him on how to handle Pharaoh's rejection. He wasn't just going to walk away when Pharaoh said no and say, well, I'll try again later. He was going to begin to demonstrate God's power. This is why the plagues start. Because Moses is going to demonstrate God's power and presence before Pharaoh, which would eventually be before the whole nation. So verse number 8 The Lord spoke to Moses on how to handle Pharaoh's rejection. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show me a miracle for yourselves, or prove yourselves to me, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh had called his wise men and sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. 
Again, we have this face-off between what appears to be equals. But verse number 12, Every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed, just as the Lord had said he wouldn't. Now, we're reminded of God's initial call over Moses. We're going to look back in a few pages, chapter 4. Um, we're reminded about God's initial call over Moses in this text. Um, God says to Moses, remember Moses, you've got an ace up your sleeve, or rather, you've got the ace in your hand. It's your staff. It's your rod. Now, here's what you probably know, but just to remind you or, or fill you in, clue, you in on, clue you into in case you didn't, most ancient kings had scepters. Some of them thought they had special powers. They were like magic wands, right? That's where we get that idea from. Um, most ancient kings had scepters. They thought they were powerful. Some of them just probably had them because they thought they looked cool, right? If I was a king, I would have a staff too, right? And if, you want, if I could make you think it had special powers, I probably would. But it would probably just be because it looked cool, right? And this wasn't just in the movies. We have evidence um, or hieroglyphics excuse me, um, from ancient Egypt that uh, show us kind of that the, these leaders, these kings not just from Egypt, but all over the ancient world, they all had staffs or scepters or spears. Here's a few examples. Some of these are reproductions, so they're not the actual pictures from the caves or from the pyramids. A few examples. We have um, what, presume, what we presume to be Pharaoh or maybe his wife. That looks like maybe it could be a woman, but you can't tell from ancient artwork. We see that there is a staff in hand. And I don't know if they actually wore wings like that, but that would be really cool if our leaders did that because then they wouldn't just talk like they didn't know what they were doing. They would look like they didn't know what they were doing, right? So they would look as foolish as they sound. But that's another sermon. Here's another picture. Um, we, we see that probably on, the, on your right side, uh, that would be Pharaoh holding a sphere, right? And he's getting presented some, uh, I don't know if that's uh, flour or some sort of food. Then there's this guy who looks like he's a bird um, holding the staff. That's probably one of the magicians, the magicians and sorcerers and the, the kind of the witch doctors in the ancient world. They wore animal masks. They thought they could talk to animals, right? Balaam thought he could, right? So that's kind of the, the of the ilk that is. And then finally, there's a really cool picture um, where it, it's kind of big. It's, it might, might, might be small for you, but there's all sorts of magicians there. One has a, an eagle mask. One has a wolf mask. Um, and, and we see what may be Pharaoh or may just be one of his henchmen. So clearly you get the idea that everybody in the ancient world, if you had power, you had a stick in your hand, right? Because it just made people think you were powerful or made people think you had some sort of, um, you know, authority. So it's appropriate that Moses is facing Pharaoh with his own staff, right? Don't you see how God is speaking in the language that they could understand? And when Moses walks in with a staff, people automatically say, well, this guy, this guy must be a prophet. This guy must be some sort of important fellow. He's got a staff. In his hand. Again, all of this carries a lot of symbolism, but we kind of see what is build, being built up to. He faces off against Pharaoh's magicians, who also would have essentially been the priests of the land. So the magicians in, uh, of, of Egypt would have been the priests. They would have had uh, command over and conducted magic in service of the gods of the land. So the ancient world and its leaders were all about staffs and st- sticks and rods and scepters. Um, scepter and staff is often used interchangeably in the Bible with power um, when referencing kings and rulers. And, and just to show you a few examples, um, these are in reference to the enemies of God, but you can 
also find this in reference to the leaders uh, and, and the good people in the Old Testament. Um, Psalms 125, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. So that's basically God saying that the, 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 the evil empires, the evil kingdoms, He's referring to their leaders, right? The scepter of wickedness, those that wield the power. He says they won't conquer you. So we see that kind of you know, scepter interchangeably with power there. Also in Isaiah 14, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the ruler. So again, we see that rod and staff and scepter are synonymous with power and leadership and authority. So it's fitting that God made sure His messenger had a staff of their own. But you'll remember, Moses' staff predates his role as God's messenger, didn't it? Moses' staff wasn't a staff of a king. It wasn't the staff of a prophet. Flip back a few pages and we'll recall why Moses had a staff in the first place. Chapter 4, the scripture tells us, Moses answered and said, but suppose that they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you because Moses said, hey, I'm just a guy, right? And this is after he saw the burning bush and after he has been in Midian for those 40 years and nobody has heard of Moses or knows who he is or thinks he's anything important. And then God says, and the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A rod. A staff. A stick. And we know why Moses had the stick. It wasn't because he was a prophet. It wasn't because he was a king. It was because he was a shepherd, right? Now, there weren't shepherds in Egypt because the Egyptians hated shepherds. So there wouldn't have been ordinary men holding ordinary sticks in Egypt. If you had a stick in Egypt, you were a person of authority. But if you had a stick in Midian, if you had a stick anywhere in the backwoods of the desert, backside, no woods, right? Backside of the desert, as it were, you were just a shepherd, So Moses' staff wouldn't have been a cast iron or made of gold. His staff would have been a shepherd's crook, a wooden stick. What's special about that? Nothing. Nothing at all. If this doesn't speak to how God approaches things or handles things, I don't know what does. Now, I want to bring maximum attention to this. Moses' staff in contrast to Pharaoh's and Pharaoh's magicians. I think this resoundingly has a message for me and you tonight that I think will cha- can change the way we see the most mundane of days. In, in extreme, in excruciating circumstances, God can work extraordinary wonders through ordinary people. And if you, I know, listen, you might not need to hear that today. You might not need to hear that tomorrow. But you need to hear that on most days. And I know that people in extraordinary, people of extraordinary power and wealth and authority may not think they need to hear that, but even they need to hear that. But we, we need to be reminded in extreme and excruciating circumstances when we get ourselves in situations that are very challenging and overwhelming or maybe you find yourself in a season of life where you just feel like nothing matters or you don't matter or you're not significant or you don't have a purpose. Whether you're going through a valley of, of, of gloom and doom or whether you're in a crucible where everybody is coming against you. Whether you're facing trouble or whether you're, fa- you're going through a season of depression or a season of doubt. You need, we need, I need to hear this. God can work extraordinary wonders. And I'm not just blowing smoke. 
around us tonight. This story is proof of that. In fact, this is God's preferred mode and means of operation. See, we often disqualify ourselves because we don't have much to offer. That's what Moses goes on to say. God, I, I, I'm just a shepherd. I can't talk well. I can't do anything, right? You know, do you think I went to the, you think I ran away and I had the dream of becoming a shepherd? Nobody dreams of becoming a shepherd. You become a shepherd when you aren't good at fishing and you become a fisherman when you, when you don't make it into law school or, you know, an actual, you know, a credible job, right? You, you become a fisherman in ancient Israel when, when no rabbi, you know, thinks you're worth becoming part of the elite saint. Sanhedrin and Pharisees and Sadducees, right? You become one of the lower tier people on the totem pole when you aren't smart enough or aren't wealthy enough or weren't born in the right family. But you become a shepherd when you're not good at anything. But you can at least hold a stick and make sheep who are afraid of everything. You can at least make sheep get in line. And you'll learn that stick can hit wolves. You'll learn that stick can kill snakes. You'll learn that stick can offer a little bit of guidance to the most foolish of creatures, the sheep. See, we often disqualify ourselves because we don't have much to offer because we aren't smart enough. We aren't able enough. We don't have this or we don't have that. We can't do this. And we say, what can I do? What can I bring? And maybe you've asked that before. Maybe you've said that before. Maybe it was just an excuse that you used to, just to feign your own lack of concern or interest. But come on, we've all said, I don't have much to bring to the table. But God does not accept that excuse. And you shouldn't believe that lie. We weren't the first people to ever ask these sorts of to ever ask these sorts of questions or make these sorts of excuses. Moses was asking them, and all throughout scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, we see these sorts of people in scenarios where many of us would stand back and say, "What can he do? What can she do? I mean, does she really think she's going to make a difference? Does he really think he's going to matter? I mean, come on. What, what good can a tiny army of uncivilized, untrained men do against the strongholds of Israel's enemies? I mean, come on, Gideon. You know, you've got a few hundred men. You had 22,000 people enrolled in the army, and you've dismissed all of them but 300, and they're the ones that don't even have the decency to, put their water, put a, to get the water in a cup. I mean, you pick the guys that got on their face in the river and didn't have the decency or the, you know, well manners to actually drink out of a saucer. You pick the guys that put their face in the lake and just lapped it up like a dog. Come on, Gideon. Do you really think that's going to work? Well, y'all aren't going to believe me, but God actually told me this was going to work. And they laughed at him even more. You know, Gideon, we, we really... We're doubting you, but when you actually tell us that God told you to do this, now we just think you're hallucinating. But the story would go on, and the history would tell that Gideon and his 300 men saved the day, right? That Gideon and his 300 men did the impossible, while the armies of Midian ran for their lives. But still people begin to would ask these kind of questions, right? What good can you do? Years later, what good can a shepherd boy do against a giant with just a slingshot? I mean, you, you at least need to put some armor on, David. And maybe you should come back when you're about 10 years older and can actually lift 
a rock bigger than a pebble. Because you're going to need more than that to throw at that guy. David, are you real? Are you sure? Are you serious that you're going to die like that? Run out on the battlefield for a giant to just stomp on you? But of course, we know how that story goes, don't we? But that wouldn't stop people from asking those kind of questions, would it? What good? What good can five loaves and two fish do for thousands in need? Come on, there's this kid over here. He won't stop telling, you know, Jesus, I'm sorry. He won't stop bugging me. This little kid, he wanted me to give you his lunch, and him and his dad brought it. But, you know, what, what good can this do for so many? But, of course, we know what good that did. But it wouldn't stop people from asking that question, would it? I mean, what good? What good can a cross do for the sins of the world? I mean, come on, it's just stick. It's just two pieces of wood. And some guy that nobody even had the care to defend on trial. Some guy that said he could raise the dead, but here he is, can't even save himself. What good is a cross going to do with a, with, a, with a guy that wasn't even worthy to be made a slave? What good is that going to do for the sins of the world? Are you serious? But maybe that's how God wants it to be. Where he goes and does the, pos- does the impossible with the unlikely and the unexpected. And you aren't, you're familiar with the scripture where the Apostle Paul takes the thoughts that you're having right now and puts them on paper and actually tells us this is how God works. Just to remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you can replace cross with anything, any way that God does things. It may seem like folly to somebody. It may seem foolish to everybody, but it is God's preferred way of saving lives, of changing the world. For it is written... You know what that means? It is written down. This is not a, it might be the case. It is the case. So don't sit back and say, well, maybe God wants to do this the, un, the unexpected way. Or maybe God wants to do this the unconventional way. It's not a maybe, right? It's not a, he might be up to something that is different than what I would expect. It, it is, he is up to something. Why? Because it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God says, hey, it's not going to be done the way your mind tells you it should always be done. The way society tells you it's going to have to be done. When someone says it can't, you better be ready to see that it can And you can get on the wagon if you want to, but God's going to move the train down the road whether we get on or not because He is known for working this way. And how often do we get off? Because we doubt. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So God is in the habit, in the business of confounding those who say, well, that's not the way I see it. Or the way I feel it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That means this. That the world is going to try its best to disprove and move God out of every avenue and every, every environment as possible. 
Don't be surprised. Don't panic. Don't pull your hair out. That's just the nature of a world that has said, we don't need you. And don't be surprised when the world does it. We do it as Christians, right? Come on. We look at certain commandments in the Bible. I can't afford to do that. I am not able to do that. So if Christians pick and choose what we believe, do you expect the world not to? Right? When we don't even believe God to do what He says, can you, are, you, are we really surprised when the world doesn't take Him serious? Because of course they shouldn't. Of course they aren't going to. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block. It's folly. That means... So many of us, we wait for signs. We wait for proof. We wait for an explanation. Some people, they live in, they live in you know, and this is Christian people, right? We wait for God to show us a sign. We don't need a sign, right? Jesus raising from the dead is enough of a sign. We don't need another one. The explanation may not, may not ever come. That's why it's by faith, Right? And we're not stepping out on nothing. We're stepping out on Jesus. The firstborn from the dead, right? That's not, I don't know how this will work. That's, that's I know it will work. Because he said so. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, He is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Isn't that awesome? But why don't we trust Him when He says it? When somebody comes to me and says, you know what, Justin, things are just not going the way I want them to. Well, I, hey, praise God that you're noticing that. Things just aren't working out the way I thought they would. Okay? Have you read that verse? That what may seem foolish or broken or not, to, not as together as you expected it to be, you know, Justin, I really thought by age 40 I'd be a different place in life. I thought by age 25 I'd have it all figured out. Come on, right? We know better. I knew, I thought, I thought, you know, right? I thought by age 50 I would be okay, but you know what? I'm not. It's okay. Because God is greater. And it may be in those weakness and foolish areas of your life, not where you've just not cared, but where you just haven't been able to get it together. Maybe it was God's will that things wouldn't go that you, the way you thought it would. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. And could it be that He's doing that through your life? God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in His presence. What is that telling us? It's telling us that we might not always get an explanation. We might not always have proof. We may feel weak, and we may feel like we don't have all the pieces together. But that doesn't mean we should make excuses. God can, He can, He can use and work through the most insignificant of people, through the most unimpressive tools against the most unlikely odds. But of course, we have to trust Him. We have to obey Him. 
God tells Moses all he's got to do is lay his staff down. What does it say in verse 3? Cast the staff on the ground. Moses, I know you're just a shepherd. I know you're just a shepherd. And what can a shepherd do in the kingdom of God? Shepherd, what, what do you use daily that seems like an insignificant tool? that could become a spiritual gift. Shepherds carry staffs. Nothing, or, nothing special about staffs. But God took this staff and made it spiritual. What do you find? What do you put your hands on daily? What environment do you step into daily that seems like an insignificant tool, an insignificant platform that God may want to change into a spiritual gift, a spiritual platform? Obviously, every act might not part the Red Sea, but it can be used for God's glory, whether doors are open, people you encounter, proceeds and opportunities that you are afforded because of the thing that you do every day that may seem insignificant. But God might want to make it a spiritual gift. From our tongues, our phones, our toys, our jobs, there are so many ways we can take this. God go to the next one. God can give transformative power to the everyday aspects and avenues of our lives. I believe that can be true for you. He can give transformative power. God was telling Moses his profession was not just a job, it was a platform. And I'll be honest with you. There may not always be a straight through line from object to opportunity. You may not always be able to see, well, this is going to lead to this. This object or this platform or this, this person or this thing, this is going to lead to this. You may not always be able to see it, but we've got to trust that God can and will connect the dots. If we seek Him, who knows how He'll make a way? It comes down to, do we want to be used? Do we want to follow through? If you look down at verse 13, the Scripture tells us that Moses didn't want to at first. That's in chapter 4. He said, Oh Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Hey God, I don't want to do this. It was, I can't do it. Now it's, I don't want to do it. But God is persistent. And I'm glad He was. Sometimes we get annoyed by God's persistence, don't we? Don't lie, you've been annoyed by God before, haven't you? Because He just got on your nerves. He wouldn't stop saying, it's time, it's time. You're like, I don't want to do it. God doesn't owe this to any of us. We best heed it when He is persistent. Because there may be a day when it doesn't happen. And I don't say that to scare anybody. It's just reality. Eventually, we can numb out God's calling over us. And there are countless stories of kings and people in the Scriptures that eventually cross the line. But y'all are in church. Y'all are here to hear God's voice. So I know that's none of you, but we need to be aware of that. Verse 14 in chapter 4, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Look, he's coming out to meet you when he sees you. He'll be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him, but the words in his mouth, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. I will teach you what you shall do. He shall be your spokesman to the people. He himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. And notice down in verse 20 how it ends. And Moses took the rod of God in his hands. 
It at once was Moses' shepherding staff. And now what is it? It is God's staff. It is God's rod. And from there, an ordinary staff forged an extraordinary path. An ordinary tool forged an extraordinary way. I know that this applies to every one of us. We just need to open our eyes to it. Maybe the most amazing thing about that path is that path led Moses to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh didn't know it was just a shepherd's staff. He thought Moses was a legitimate prophet. Because he could feel it. That Moses wasn't just a shepherd anymore. He was God's messenger. That's all all that matters. Maybe you back out of serving God or speaking for God because you are intimidated by what the world says to you. Maybe the world speaks so loud you wonder how you could ever make a difference. The world already dominates your day. Why would you ever try to make an inroad? But maybe it's time to start listening and trusting God and taking whatever you have in your hand, whatever you have in your means, and putting it to use. We don't have to do it arrogantly or bringing lots of attention to ourselves. We just need to do it faithfully and show people what Moses showed Pharaoh. It may not convince anybody. Pharaoh continued to ignore and harden his heart. But that might not be what God is intending out of your obedience. We don't know what God is up to. We just know He is trying to make Himself known. Moses' staff cast down in Pharaoh's throne room, put God's power on display, swallowing up the enemy's tricks and tactics to imitate and intimidate God's power. And God might want to do the same thing through your staff, through your job, through your role in your family, your community. And I don't think he just might want to. I think he does want to. So let's decide tonight, we're going to seek out and we're going to obey God's calling over our lives. Tomorrow doesn't have to be just another day at that job or in that house or in that family or in that scenario. We can go from staff member to staff carrier. We're not just a member on a staff somewhere, sliding a card, punching a card. We are a staff carrier in the kingdom of God. And it's time for us to rise up and bear that staff with the confidence and the boldness and the purpose that God has equipped us with. Through prayer, through devotion, we can raise our heads up and not drag into work tomorrow, not drag wherever we go tomorrow with doom and gloom and pessimism. We can lift up our voices and lift up our eyes and believe that we've got a purpose. Because the Scripture says it is written. God's already decided that you do. So let's live like it. Let's act like it. Let's go and show the world who God is tomorrow. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for this prophecy that's been cast over our lives tonight. It is written that you use the foolish and the insignificant and the unnoticed in the world to do the greatest of miracles, which is to make Jesus known when the world has said he is not welcome here or he cannot be applicable here or it will not make sense here. God, somebody tonight, somebody here just doesn't care. 
And I'm not saying that to judge them. That's just the reality of life. Somebody here would say like Moses, God, just send somebody else. I'm too busy. God, I hope that you don't leave them alone. I hope that you show them their role as an employee, their role as a parent, as a grandparent, as a whatever it is, wherever they're at. I hope you show them they matter to you and they've got a staff to pick up and it may seem insignificant, but it is spiritual. It is a kingdom mover. Father, somebody here just doesn't doesn't care, but somebody here does, they, they deeply care. And they're praying every day for you to use them and they're just waiting and they're just watching and they're just hoping. God, encourage them that their work has not been in vain and that you're going to use their faithfulness to demonstrate your power. You're going to swallow up the enemy's intimidation and his imitation and you're going to make a difference in the world through them. They just need to keep being faithful. Lord, wherever wherever this lands and whoever hears this, show them that they can go from being just an average, ordinary staff member in the world to a staff carrier in the kingdom of God and help them to have the confidence and the boldness to not back down. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.